Today's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 7, verses 18 through 25. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging a war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to, to Christ. Christ. Thanks again, Nathan. So uh, we're, we're still in our series on what we're calling Love Supreme, the anchor doctrines uh, from the Protestant Reformation uh, in commemoration of uh, this, the 500th year anniversary of, of the Reformation. Uh, and uh, today we're going to cover a more lighthearted uh, subject about how human beings are corrupt to the core. Uh, but also loved to the uttermost. So, um, Patty and I were at a concert a few weeks ago with, with our friends Grant and Kate, and uh, uh, at one point in the concert, the 26-year-old lead singer says to the crowd, if you forget everything from tonight, remember this, you can go out and do anything you want. Anything you want. And so, after this concert is over, go out and do anything you want. And Grant somewhere in his early 40s, he leans over to me and he says, I think I'm going to win the U.S. Open next year. And I leaned back to him and I said, I think I'm going to write a New York Times bestseller. And, uh, you know, wondering what all these other people are going to, to do to, to shake the earth next year. But the truth of the matter is that um, we can't do anything that we want. We do have limitations. And, and sometimes we assume too much about our natural ability and what what today's anchor doctrine uh, wants to uh, persuade us of is that the same is true uh, with respect to our spiritual and moral ability. Sometimes we assume way too much about what we're able to do on our own. And so today's anchor doctrine has been described by some as the total depravity of the human race. And uh, there are many, including myself, who believe that this particular language is misleading and ultimately unhelpful because it seems to suggest that human beings have zero capacity for anything good, and that's just not true. Uh, there are both Christians and non-Christians who, who are, are better, at yours, better than yours truly at, at, at certain virtues and certain areas of life. And there's also this thing that theologians in the Bible uh, teach called common grace, which means that, that, that God has created everybody in His image, and so there's, there's the light of God in that respect in, in every person, and therefore the capacity to, uh, in certain ways, uh, contribute good to the world. And so, um, I think a more accurate 
phrase to use would be total inability, meaning that without God's help, without God's aid, we are not just spiritually and morally sick, we're actually spiritually and morally destroyed. You know, Gallup came out with a poll recently that, that indicated that the overwhelming number of, uh, of Christians, actually, uh, would agree with the statement that all human beings are basically good. But what Scripture teaches is, uh, and this is Ephesians 2 and a whole lot of other places, but what Scripture teaches is that human beings aren't basically good, we're, we're actually basically dead. Because Ephesians 2 says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God made us alive in Christ. By grace, you've been, been saved through faith. And so, um, what Ravi Zacharias says uh, about this resonates uh, when he said, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people live. Big difference between the two. And so, there, there are a couple of headings today, and, and the first is the really fun one, corrupt to the core, uh, that we all are, and love to the uttermost would be, um, would be the second. So, corrupt to the core. I mean, the Apostle Paul, in the middle of writing the most rich, robust, complete theological uh, document perhaps ever written uh, in the book of Romans, right in the middle, in Romans 7.24, says, wretched man that I am. And he's referring to his, his covetous heart. And what he says resonates with, with maybe what he might be remembering back to the Torah that he had learned and memorized growing up as a young uh, Jewish boy and ultimately as a, as, a, as a rabbi trainee, where it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, all, all, all the way back to the beginning almost, that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And then we think, well, that's Old Testament. But then when we get to the New, we get texts like this one. We also get texts like Romans 3, which says that there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who seeks God. There's no one who's good not even one. And so, it's pretty depressing, right? The sobering truth that um, this biblical doctrine wants to convince us of is this, that there is potential in every single one of us to become a complete monster. Every one of us. Mother Teresa had that potential. None of us is exempt you know, Paul writes in verse 18 about how he has this desire to do what's right. He actually has a, a positive affection for the law of God and for things like holiness and living a beautiful life, but he says, I am unable to carry it out. I love God's law. I delight in the law of God, but there's this other part of me called sinfulness or called the flesh that's at war with that love for God. And so, I've got this flesh-desiring, sin-desiring part of me, and this, this uh, you know, love-desiring, God-desiring part of me. It's like Jekyll and Hyde, right? This constant war with himself, which suggests to us that even the most virtuous people, because remember, this is the Apostle Paul. 
He wrote about a third of the New Testament, and, and, and it's telling us that even the most virtuous people are capable of horrific things if put in a certain set of circumstances and under certain pressures. King David is maybe another uh, example of this. You know, David is referred to by the Lord Himself as a man after God's own heart, a man who loves God in an exemplary way. He authored roughly 50% of the Psalms, which is the prayer book that's been passed on to the rest of the human race to, to use and, and, and to learn from as, as what a model way of praying looks like. And yet we see this same King David, after he's written a lot of these psalms, uh, in 2 Samuel 11, where it says that all the kings were out doing battle, protecting their people, putting themselves and their own lives at risk. And David's men, the armies of Israel, were out also at war, protecting the people, putting their own lives at risk. And David arises, it says, from an afternoon nap. He's sleeping, he's slumbering while everybody else is out risking their lives. And, and it says that he looked over and, and saw a woman named Bathsheba bathing on the roof next door, the wife of one of his best friends, Uriah. And it says that he, David the king, saw her and took her. He abuses his power. The man after God's own heart becomes a sexual predator and in order to cover it up, becomes a murderer. Even the man after God's own heart has the potential in him to become Harvey Weinstein or Kevin Spacey. If there was a Me Too hashtag campaign in ancient Israel, Bathsheba would have been Exhibit A. And so what the doctrine, the historic doctrine of total inability asks of us is to humbly concede that there are zero degrees of separation between us and David, that we are capable, too, of the very worst. We are capable of monstrous things, and all we need is the, the set of conditions and the set of pressures in which those seeds can, can germinate and grow. <clears throat> Even at our best, though, we, we, we miss the mark, and this is part of what, what Paul is getting after here. Remember, he writes as an apostle, somebody who's been commissioned by Christ himself to, to bring the message of, of God's truth and beauty and goodness and grace to the world. You know, and all the way at the end of Paul's life, you know, we've talked about this, this passage before, this stunning statement that Paul makes about himself when he's, he's at his prime as a man of virtue, as a man of God, he's at his prime at the very end, and he refers to himself as the chief of all sinners. You know, maybe in Paul we're, we're seeing the New Testament equivalent of, of Isaiah in the Old Testament. So, we're going we're gonna to pull out all the stops like we do here oftentimes in the Christmas holidays, and, and we're going to uh, do another wonderful performance, our, our music ministry is, of, of Handel's Messiah here in the sanctuary. It's magnificent. And what all, all Handel's Messiah is, is a walk through Isaiah. And the thing about Isaiah is that he has a very similar encounter with himself in light of who God is in Isaiah chapter 6. 
the most celebrated prophet perhaps in the history of the world, second only to Jesus, uh, the, the, the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. Isaiah, it says, has an encounter with God, and his immediate reaction is to cry out in a very similar way that Paul does, woe is me, I am wrecked, I am ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's his version of wretched man that I am. Who's going to help me? Who's going to rescue me from myself? Who's going to help me deal with me? And what's striking is this is Isaiah the prophet. And the part of him that he targets when he says, woe is me, is his lips. The most virtuous part of him. The most godlike part of him, his lips. I am a man of unclean lips. I mean, you'd expect, you know, another body part. Like, I'm a man with a lot of wax in my ears, or I'm a, a man with a lot of dirt under my fingernails. But no, he's saying, the very best part of me is dirty. All of our best acts are, as ACDC once said, dirty deeds done dirt cheap. Filthy rags in Isaiah's language. At our best, filthy rags. You see, the Bible confirms this from cover to cover, but it's also there in philosophy. Nietzsche called it self-centered altruism. Even the good deeds that we do, they're done from twisted motives, damnable good works, selfishly motivated, even though they look pure on the outside. De Tocqueville had a similar phrase to describe the same dynamic when he, when he talked about enlightened self-interest. It's in literature as well. You know, Melville in, in Moby Dick uh, there's this famous uh, statement made there, and it goes like this, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Or Lady Macbeth in Act 5, Scene 1, this is Shakespeare depicting the, the, the human problem of guilt and shame, and Lady Macbeth is sleepwalking, and she's, you know, doing this with her hands, sleepwalking, and, 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 and she's crying out, out, damned spot, out, damned spot. And, and that damned spot represents the stain that we are all carrying with us of missing the mark, of dirty deeds done dirt cheap, of righteous acts that are damnable, and of the helpless place that it puts us. It's in music too. You know, Bob Dylan sings about it. Everybody's broken. Johnny Cash does a remake of Nine Inch Nails. You can have it all. My empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. Sufjan Stevens. Uh, this is the most chilling one to me. It's on a Chicago album. There's a song, and the title is John Wayne Gacy Jr. Does that name ring a bell to you? John Wayne Gacy Jr. also came to be infam infamously known as the Clown Killer. He would go to children's parties dressed as a clown and would abduct people, and ultimately he would be 
convicted for the rape and the murder of boys and men, 27 of whom had their corpses buried underneath the floorboard of his house. And then there were others, other victims of his, found in nearby rivers. And so what Sufyan Stevens does is he he depicts the, the, the darkness that is the human condition played out in the life of John Wayne Gacy Jr. But here's the last line, and he catches us with it. We don't expect it, but here's, here's, here's where the whole song is leading up to. Here's where the whole biography of John Wayne Gacy Jr. Find its climax. Here, he finds its climax. The song ends this way. In my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards to the secrets I have hid. See, the bad news in the Bible, it's not just hyperbole. It's not hyperbole at all. It's plain truth that every part of us is really that cracked. Just like every part of of, of a glass of water is darkened when you drop one drop of black dye in it, it darkens the whole water. And that's what sin has done to the human personality and the human soul. You know, Tim Keller put it this way. If you're, if you're um, maybe not experienced with Christianity or maybe don't identify as a Christian, this is going to sound really just like odd, odd, kind of excessive, morose, maybe offensive teaching to you. But it, Tim Keller put, out, put a statement out on Twitter not too long ago that I think helps, helps to describe this dynamic from the Christian perspective. He said that the Christian understanding of sin is different than what most people think. I cannot preach a sermon or say a prayer without sinning. See, I've shared this with you before, maybe to help you understand a little bit more about what Keller's trying to communicate. 21 years preaching sermons. I've never given anything less than 100% preparing sermons Never given anything less than 100% in anything I've ever written and put out there for public consumption. Basically, all the public stuff I do, I give, I, I give 100% to it. And there, there, there are two reasons for it. One of it is the, the good and God-desiring part that lives in me. And that's that I want to I honor God, and I also want to do right by you to give you the very best that I'm capable of giving. But then there's this other part of me. The, the, the sin-desiring aspect of me that, that is really a plagiarist. And I'm a plagiarist, not, not that I'm stealing information from other people and not giving credit, but I'm stealing credit from God. You see, because I, I, I do public things sometimes from, from a very um, wounded ego sort of place. And I, I want to put excellence out there sometimes for, for people so that... I will receive the credit and the recognition and the glory and the honor and the praise that really belongs to God because every single ability that I have comes from Him. And so, really, He gets all the credit, and yet I want to steal it. I'm a plagiarist, which is why I try to excel sometimes because I'm an internal plagiarist. You see, Paul, when he's talking about his own wretchedness, it's an internal thing. It's a heart thing. He's talking about coveting, something that others don't see. 
And he's basically just communicating. There, there is a mixture. There is a duplicity in all of us. And, you know, some of us may say, well, this is morose. It's offensive. I'm better than this. I am better than that. Do you think you're better than me? You probably have a point, <laughs> if you do. But do you think you're better than the Apostle Paul? Do you think you're better than Isaiah? Do you think you're morally superior to David? Do you think you're better than Peter? Do you think you're better? Do you really think there's something more virtuous in you than, than, than what they had? Do you think there's a moral superiority in you that they did not possess? And then there's the other potential, and that is that we actually become receptive to this. You know, there's something liberating, isn't there, when, when the Apostle Paul of all people says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Or Isaiah, I am ruined. And then the angel of the Lord is sent to him with the message, your guilt has been removed and your sin has been atoned for. Or David, when he writes Psalm 51, after killing his best friend to cover up his abuse of power and Harvey Weinstein-like behavior, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquities, cleanse me from my sin. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope that if people this jacked up find that kind of access to the love and grace and kindness and forgiveness of God, then there's hope for me too. See, disgrace is a setup for grace in God's redemption story. You know, Leonard Cohen put it well. He told it true. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. And what is the light? The light is this. You are loved in Christ to the uttermost. Yes, there is a whole lot of stubborn in this room. Yes, there are a whole lot of demons in this room, but one molecule of faith is all it takes, and even that little molecule is a gift from God, to completely undo and obliterate the narrative of guilt and shame in your life and in mine. Why does Paul get up in our grill? It's to set us up for rescue. It's to set us up for the surgery that, 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 that we so desperately need in order to be healed. Conviction, in other words, conviction of sin is a necessary good for healthy humanity. You know, Carl Menninger, the famous psychiatrist, this is not a theologian. This is a psychiatrist speaking from a psychiatric expertise perspective. He, he, he wrote this piece called Whatever Became of Sin, and in there he said this, I call for a revival of a conscious sense of guilt and repentance, in short, a revival of sin. And what should be the good of that? Why not a no-fault theology, no one to blame? The assumption that there is sin in something implies both a possibility for and an obligation to and intervention. We want to help ourselves and others, and hence, sin is the only hopeful view. When evil appears around us and no one is responsible, no one is guilty, no moral questions are asked, then there is, in short, nothing to do. So we sink to despairing hopelessness. Therefore, the consequence of my proposal would not be more depression 
but less. It's just another way of saying maybe our fixation on self-esteem is causing the problem. It's not a solution to the problem of guilt and shame, but it's exacerbating the problem that freedom comes from admitting the truth and owning it and moving forward because where there is sin, there is also the availability of forgiveness and redemption and healing. You know, only when sin becomes this bad to us can the truths of grace become this good. Where grace is amazing, where it's, it electrifies, it's not just a little cute song that we sing, it's everything. All I have is Christ, but I have Him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You know, the answer to Romans 7 and Paul's wrestling with his own wretchedness is Romans 8. Romans 8 starts with no condemnation. There's no condemnation for you in Christ. It ends with no separation. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I mean, think of Peter and Judas. They are both essentially guilty of the same sin. They both betray their Lord and Master, Jesus Christ both of them. Some might argue that Peter's betrayal was even worse than Judas's because he betrayed Jesus three times instead of just once. And yet their perspective makes all the difference because they're both dealing with the damned spot. And they're both realizing there's nothing I can do to get rid of this damned spot. What am I going to do? Judas, his the logical conclusion, as Nietzsche would say, is suicide. That's the logical conclusion to having to live with guilt and shame, is to just finish it. And that's what Judas ultimately did. It was tragic. Peter, same spot, same stain, same corruption. Where else will I go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Mashiach the Messiah, who was and who is and who is to come. Neither Judas nor Peter could survive his own guilt or his own shame. One, Judas, owned that guilt and shame as his identity, and it destroyed him. The other, Peter, disowned his guilt, his very real guilt and very real shame, disowned it. Jesus took it, surrendered it over to Jesus, and it no longer defined him. It no longer defined him. Peter, you bring me your history. I'm going to bring you my body and my blood. No condemnation, no separation. Isaiah 52 and 53 give us this picture. It's a foretelling of Jesus. It's the teaching on the suffering servant, speaking of Isaiah, who said there was no beauty or majesty to attract us to Jesus, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. We were appalled at Him. We couldn't look at Him. We turned our faces from Him. He voluntarily became wretched, a wretch, in order to position us to become glorious. 
in order to filter out the black drop of dye that stains everything to make us pure again. And He became discolored in our place. But it's not just that. He, he then deploys us for service. You know, Isaiah's immediate response when, when, when the angel of the Lord says, your guilt is removed, your sin is atoned for, is here am I, send me. Same thing happens with Paul. Right after Romans, the guilt of Romans 7 is the liberation of Romans 8. Right after the liberation of Romans 8 is Paul on a mission. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, you see Paul's yearning for Israel's salvation and his, his disposition to forgive all the hurts and, and wounds and injuries that are coming his way from his own countrymen. Chapter 12, he calls for a life of love. Chapter 13, he says, submit to the authorities. Chapter 14, don't judge. Instead, respect tender consciences. Chapter 15, follow my example, he says, as I follow the example of Christ. Chapter 16, use your words to encourage and build up instead of to tear down. Catch people doing good instead of trying to bust somebody all the time. Catch people doing good instead of living your life so easily offended on a hair trigger all the time. What a great cultural moment we're in. What an incredible opportunity. All the cynicism out there for us not to be cynics. What would that look like? See, the devil's dirty trick is this. After you've been pronounced free, forgiven, the, the, the verdict against you is, is you are acquitted, the, the dirty trick is this. We don't believe no condemnation and no separation enough to stop acting like we're still on trial. We have been set free, and there's a whole beautiful life to be lived. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free, and so the call is to leave the courtroom, or as Isaiah would also write, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow, come now and let us reason together says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. No more damned spot. God won't treat us as our sins deserve because He already subjected Jesus to what our sins deserve. And therefore, we are free. And so, as we head to the Lord's table, before I pray, I'd like to read a couple of sentences from Brennan Manning that sum all of this up. My deepest awareness, Brennan Manning says, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Define yourself radically as one who is beloved by God. This is the true self in Christ. Every other identity is an illusion. Let's pray. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity and joined with power. He is able and He is willing. Doubt no more. Let not conscience make you linger nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. Lord, there's a whole lot of stubborn in this room. There are a whole lot of demons in this room. But the molecule of faith which has come to us 
even that as a gift from you, liberates us from the stubborn and from the demons. When you look at us through Jesus Christ, there is no wretch in your eyes. There is no shamefulness. There is no guilt. There is a daughter and there is a son as far as you are concerned. Beloved, liberated from the courtroom and free. Father, as we approach your table, as we receive the bread and the cup that Jesus commissioned, would you strengthen us to go out into the world really believing this, really living this. Lord, let us not follow in the steps of Judas who owned the identity of shame and guilt. Let us follow instead in the steps of Peter and of Paul and of David and of Isaiah who disowned shame and guilt because you owned it for them. Thank you that you own it for us as well. And it's in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.